I'm delighted to welcome you to Search for Truth with your Bible teacher, Brian Johnston. Thanks for the privilege of your company. And today it's the penultimate study of our 12-part series called Getting Real. Brian's already looked into giving reality to Bible study, prayer times and living with integrity at home and so on. And I hope you're enjoying the programmes if you've been following along. But this week, the subject of today's talk is dealing with disillusionment. So, Brian, why choose to talk about this? Well, John, I don't think any treatment of the reality of Christian living and service could be considered complete if we didn't cover the issue of disillusionment. It's not that we could ever rightly be disappointed with God, nor in his instruction for our lives, but we can so easily become disillusioned by what we perceive as the behaviour of others, as well as disappointed in our own performance. The Apostle Paul recognised and spoke to the very real danger of losing heart. But first, the words of Bible preacher James Stewart from his book, Heralds of God, they have remained with me, no doubt because I sense a kind of reality about them. He wrote, Surely there are a few figures so pitiable as the disillusioned minister of the gospel. High hopes cheered him on his way, but now the indifference of the world, the lack of visible results, the discovery of appalling pettiness, the feeling of personal futility, all these have seared his soul. No longer does the zeal of God's house devour him. No longer does he mount the pulpit steps in thrilled expectancy that Jesus Christ will come amongst his folk that day, travelling in the greatness of his strength, mighty to save. The man has lost heart. A Christian with any years of experience would, I suggest, be in denial to dispute the reality that Stuart describes. The Apostle Paul experienced it too, amid the brutal opposition he often had to endure and the defection of those who'd once been converted and had been loyal supporters. So much so that when he takes up his pen, as it were, and writes the chapter we know as 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it seems to come across very clearly that his thrust is on how to avoid losing heart. It would seem that Paul overcame this tendency by doing three things. Three things that commend themselves to us, for us to emulate. And they are, first, remembering how we ourselves once received mercy. Second, striving for transparency in plainly manifesting the truth. And third, habitually making it our aim to exhibit what he calls the dying of Jesus in a disciplined lifestyle. Let's try to unpack them briefly in turn. Paul continually remembered that he was a vessel of God's undeserved mercy. 2 Corinthians 4 and 1 literally says, As we have been mercied once for all, we do not lose heart. The mercy Paul had received from and found in Christ protected his mind and heart from temptations. We need to keep on remembering what we were before mercy came to us. We have to count God's mercy in Christ as the greatest joy of our life when surrounded by any measure of rejection and opposition. And when we tend to get exasperated by the failures we think we see so readily in others, it's a sobering corrective to return in thought to the extent to which we ourselves had to benefit from God's mercy, that is, his withholding of what we truly deserved. Then, as any reading of the New Testament narrative would support, Paul always preached with a transparent integrity. 
He announced the plain word of God. Paul refused to walk in craftiness and scheming to gain a following. He refused to adulterate or in any way to handle deceitfully the plain manifestation of the word of God. He simply preached gospel truth to men's consciences in the sight of God, no matter how negative the response he received. It may be discouraging to think that we preach to those who are blinded by their own sinful ignorance and by Satan's power. But if we accept that truth, we'll not be expecting from other things what only God can do in their heart. Finally, Paul practiced self-denial. The dying of Jesus was his adopted worldview. He was so overwhelmed at the self-denial of God the Son for a sinner like himself that it transformed his thinking towards others at all times, infusing it with reality. In such an attitude, there's no room for self-importance, jealousy of another's easier circumstances, or for wallowing in self-pity. There's only room for the self-denying joy of seeing the grace of God spread to more people. Self-denial on earth is fueled not by what we see with our eyes now, but what we see in the future. We may see sermons going unheeded, loving rebukes rewarded with hatred, sincerity rewarded with deception, loyalty returned with betrayal. Only the future, seen by faith, can cause the trials of a self-denying ministry to be called momentary light affliction. What's more, I think we should surface some realistic concerns relating to those deeply committed to the Christian faith and serving God's purpose in their lives. There's the real danger of emotional depletion. Many in positions of Christian responsibility run on empty emotional tanks, brought about by continual output in terms of teaching and leadership, always being on display as a public figure, facing criticism of their ministry, and the pressure of relentless expectations. Those with a shepherd's heart discover sheep are messy creatures. Burnout can result from the defections of those upon whom a lot of effort had been expended. Then there's the lack of setting appropriate boundaries in their working arrangements. If, when emotionally depleted or hurting, we don't find something God-honouring to fill our emotional tanks with, then we'll be vulnerable to something that isn't. Do we build fences around our thought life in relation to, for example, such things as we view online? And there's also spiritual deception. Because of constantly doing things, it's easy to confuse doing them with actually being spiritual. For example, being constantly in the Bible in order to prepare for a talk. It's easy to confuse this with reading the Bible devotionally. Leading public prayers too can fool someone into thinking they're leading a life of personal prayer. And responsible persons are often put on some kind of spiritual pedestal. All too easily, the estimation others have about their spiritual life, however unrealistic it is, can become their own. Well, we've moved on to think of those who have any kind of pastoral role. And what must underpin our work in a real sense is that we were called by God to what we do. Otherwise, we'd quickly give up. And we were called to a dual commitment. First, a commitment to the Word of God. This aspect of our calling as shepherds is to act as stewards and heralds of God's Word, both guarding it and enthusing over it. Then there's to be our commitment to the people of God, 
acting as a mother and father in terms of caring gently and educating diligently. And to give some clarity as to the caring role to be exercised, where better to turn than to the great shepherd Sam, the much-loved Psalm 23? From its verses, we can explore four freedoms. It was always the duty of the shepherd to provide freedom in four areas. Verse 2 says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. In other words, the shepherd's first duty is to ensure freedom from hunger. Pastoral care for the spiritual flock demands that it should be fed from God's word. I remember hearing about a group of Christian leaders pausing for a lunch stop while on their journey. They approached a restaurant only to read the notice on the door, closed for lunch. They smiled to themselves that this should never be said of them. The teaching pastor is to be ready to share God's word at any time. Psalm 23 next presents us with the imagery of dark valleys, where the presence of the shepherd close by was to be the essential feature. This likely has in view the moving of the flock up the hillside valley routes to the higher summer pastures. The valleys etched into the hillsides not only provided access, but in these fertile channels, typical predators had also made their homes. God's flock, in the same way, needs to be free of fear, particularly from the prowling lion looking to devour from its number. That's the graphic way the Apostle Peter describes the devil and his tactics. In Acts chapter 20, while talking to Ephesian elders, the Apostle Paul's expressed fear on behalf of the flock was in relation to those who infiltrated the community in some sense in order to press their own agendas. The same fourth verse of Psalm 23 brings up mention of the shepherd's equipment, his rod and his staff. These allowed him to both protect and guide his sheep. There's talk of comfort here, and so we relate this to a freedom from tensions. These can all too easily enter into church life. The rod was to deter wild animals, so perhaps the main source of tension we can relate to this would come from outside the local church, in terms of opposition, even persecution, but more generally simply the result of living in an environment that's increasingly hostile to the Christian faith and its distinctive values. Finally, there's freedom from aggravations. This is suggested by the reference in verse 5 of Psalm 23 to the anointing oil. This is what Middle Eastern shepherds apparently used. I'm referring to Philip Keller's book on Psalm 23, which is entitled A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And he speaks of how shepherds used oil to rub into areas such as around the nose of a sheep. The aim was to stop flies laying their eggs there, and in turn to prevent this leading to any infection of the exposed flesh. Strained relationships, tending to divisiveness, needs courageous and skilful handling. How vital an area of watchfulness this is. Very easily, interpersonal aggravations can spill over as petty jealousies creep in. Sometimes those concerned fail to treat these things by applying the procedure the Lord himself outlined in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. He'd also been talking about sheep, you remember, including one in danger of being lost to the flock. If someone has been sinned against, 
he or she is to take a couple of witnesses and interact directly and discreetly with only the person who's implicated in this matter. And it should only escalate to an issue involving the church leadership team if resistance is encountered. And that's potentially more serious than the initial fault in question because it becomes aggravated at that point. Oh, to be free, not only from aggravations, but also from tensions, from fear and from hunger. Transcripts of all the talks in this series of 12 are available in a book with the title Getting Real. If you'd like a copy or have a question or comment after listening today, just write in by post or by email. I'll give you the contact details shortly. And the talk you've heard today is also available to download via the internet, either in audio or in text format. To obtain the book, simply ask for Getting Real. You can do this by email or by post. And here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. So thanks once again for the pleasure of your company. It's been great to have you with us. And Brian will be getting real once more next week for the final time in this series. And the title is Living Above Mediocrity. I hope you'll join us. But until next time, it's very best wishes from Brian, David and me, John. So cheerio and may God richly bless you. He has promised to be